John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Well, hey, everybody, it is me, Rosie O'Donnell, star of Wide Awake. What? Yeah, that was Night Shyamalan's first movie, and I played a nun, and it's a very good film. Okay, my friend Marcy Marie spent almost 11 years in prison on the charge of embezzlement, and uh, while she was in there, uh, her children, two who were in diapers and two who were in middle school, had to survive without her. For over a decade. She's now an advocate. She talks about what's wrong with the prison system. She still is on probation. She's very wise. She's a close friend. She's lovely. And I uh, wanted her to, truth is, she was just here at my house staying over with her fiance. And I was talking to her in the backyard. I said, let's get in, sit right down. Let's just talk on this. And we just started talking and I think you're going to enjoy it. Marcy Marie Simmons, follow her, Marcy Marie on TikTok. She's a phenomenal woman and an advocate for women in prison. So take a listen and there'll be no questions at the end. It's a little different. It's sort of like the reality winner episode. So we'll be talking about a little bit more serious topics. No trigger warnings, just letting you know. It's, uh, it's kind of a little bit heavy, but it's really worth listening to. Thank you very much, Marcy Marie. How are you, Marcy? I'm awesome, Rosie. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so happy that we finally got to meet in real life. Me too, because we've been kind of interacting on Zoom and messages and TikTok, and I'm excited too. So what happened was I found Marcy on TikTok, and I thought, who is this gorgeous blonde woman who is showing us how to make food while incarcerated. As soon as I saw your first TikTok, I did a deep dive. I went and I listened to all of your TikToks and I was like, what a story this is. You have been out of prison for two years. 
I have been home for two years and you actually, the first comment that I noticed that you sent on t on a TikTok video, my mom said, hey, I think Rosie O'Donnell put a comment on one <laughs> of your videos and it was actually a video of how we would wet our pants and iron them out and dry them with our fan. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is her. Right. And I was so excited. And then I saw that you followed me. And then I was really excited because I grew up, you were a household item in our home, right? Oh, so how sweet is that? I was just fascinated by your story. And let's do a quick recap for everybody of what happened to you. You were very young. You were a young mother you had how many children at the time of your arrest? I had five children at the time of my arrest. I had three in middle school and two in diapers. And you had never done anything illegal before this? No. I mean, I had traffic violations, Rosie, but I was not about that life. Absolutely not. And you got a job working for a company, and they kind of taught you how to embezzle for them, but you weren't very aware of what you were doing at first. Is that correct? Well, they were kind of cooking their books in a way, and they were moving their finances around to make it look like their business was a lot more profitable. And from that, first thing that happened is it made me lose respect for them. And then it also showed me how they were making so much money kind of being shysty. Mm -hmm. And instead of being the person that said, I don't want to be a part of this, I'm going to go find another job, I thought, hmm, <laughs> I did something really stupid. And I ended up kind of using that same technique that they were doing uh, to take money for myself. And how is it that you got caught? Like, were the police in on it? Or did one of them turn you in? Or how did you get the blame for what innately older men taught you and told you was your job to do? Well, it, and it's kind of like in a situation where I took what they were doing a step further, right? So I was literally taking money for myself instead of kind of moving it around between their accounts. I was moving it into my account. So mm -hmm. I did that for a number of years. And the way that I was doing it, it was a system where the money had to keep moving. If it was stagnant, it would get caught up. And Rosie, I live in Texas. There was an ice storm. Nobody drives in ice in Texas. Right, right. We don't know how to do it. The state shuts down. My internet was out. <laughs> I couldn't get to work. And the money was stagnant there. And it threw a red flag up. Mm -hmm. And the bank called my employer. That's how it started. And your employer was aware of what was going on. They were not just notified and in shock that little Marcy Marie had done embezzling. They knew that that's what they had hired you in a way to do. Well, they definitely knew that there was shystiness going on. What they didn't know is that I was benefiting directly from it. They thought it was just moving their money around. And so they were surprised to know that I was in a, in flat out, let's just get blunt with it, as I was stealing from them. Right. Police show up at your house? The detective showed up at the office. Actually, I, I walk into work one day, and my big boss had flown in, and he was sitting at my desk in my chair when I get to work. And I knew, you know, I knew what time it was. And he had some papers in front of him, and he said, what in the hell is all of this? 
mm-hmm. you know. And Rosie, at that point, there was a weight that lifted from me at that time, right? So, yes, fear, yes, dread, yes, uncertain about what the consequences were going to be, but also like, thank God all of this is over. It's coming to an end because right. it was just so much. And I just told him, I just laid it out, well, this is what's going on. And just a couple of minutes after that, a detective walks in and says, I need you to come talk to me. I, I wasn't under arrest at that point, all without an attorney, which I do not recommend. No, I was going to say, didn't you watch Law & Order? Don't you know you're supposed to ask for an attorney? And it messed me up, honestly. So I knew that I probably needed an attorney, but I was still naive enough to think that well, I'm guilty. I'm not going to ever try to say I'm not guilty because I just needed it to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still had faith in our legal system that if you're going with them, I can believe them. When the detective says, well, just tell me and I'm going to try to help you, I believed it. I wasn't aware of all the injustices at that time. And how old were you? I was 30. Okay. So you're 30 and you have five little kids, a few in diapers, right? Yes. Some in middle school. And did he take you right to jail right then? So he takes me to this little room, and it was like you see on Law & Order, just that little detective interrogation room. The double-sided mirror. Yes. Yes, yes, the whole thing. And I remember sitting there thinking, holy cow, how, how did I ever let my life get to this point that I'm on this side of an interrogation like this? And again, he had some papers, and... Rosie, they didn't know exactly how I was doing it, and I was so naive and silly enough to, yes, I was doing this, and not only, yes, was I doing this, but no, this is what happened. This is how it was going down, and I should have said, I do want to talk to y'all, but I need to call an attorney. Mm -hmm. I wish I had said that. Right, but you didn't know. I didn't know. I just still really had faith that They just wanted it to be over also. I just wanted it to be over. So what was the effect on no one in your life knew you were doing this? No one. Not your family. You have a very supportive family, very close family. Your parents are still with us and uh, your grandmother still alive. Did you have to go face your family or, or you didn't get to go home? That was it. You stayed in prison from that moment on. After I kind of laid it out for the detectives, they said, well, just wait right here. And they left the room and went and talked to the DA and came back with an arrest warrant. So I was arrested at that time, but I had a $100,000 bond. And my family, my grandmother and my husband at that time split it. It cost $10,000 for me to get out of prison at that time. And they split it, probably what my grandmother had saved up, quite honestly, And I got to go home uh, for a short time. They changed the charge on me. And two weeks later, I ended up back in prison. But those two weeks that I was home, I had a lot of explaining to do. And I am grateful that I had that time because you can't talk about an open case on your phone in county jail while you're waiting for sentencing. You know, you that's not something that you can do. And so I was able to just lay it out for my family. Um. My parents did not raise me to think that that was okay, that it was not acceptable. They, they would not have been approving of that. 
my husband at the time, absolutely. He was the kind of guy that if he went in the grocery store and he was thirsty while he was shopping, he was going to go pay for his drink and then finish shopping. He wouldn't even open a Coke before he paid Mm. for it. So definitely they wouldn't have been approving. But the thing is, Rosie, they knew something was wrong with me because I had been committing my crime for about three and a half years. Wow. During that time, you can imagine nobody knew what was going on, but there was extra money, and I was having to lie and lie and lie. And as you're doing that with the people that you love and care about, you're putting up a wall, and you're creating a distance, and my family felt that. My mama knew. Yeah. My mama knew. Something was up. Absolutely. They weren't, they were surprised at the amount and the extremeness of it, but they knew something was going on. So you go to trial and what are you assuming? What are they telling you might be your sentence? Like, I know you were stunned at the sentence you got, but what what were you expecting at that time? So in the county jail, while I'm waiting to go to court, the girls are telling me, oh, you've never been in trouble. You're going to get probation. You're probably going to have to pay the money back. And I really thought I would be 10 years probation, working my tail off, making monthly payments to, to pay the money back, right? The first time I go to court, I do the whole thing, try to – I'm going to court in my jail clothes. <laughs> so I'm trying to make myself look as least amount of – looking like a criminal as I can in jail clothes, right? And I'm like making homemade mascara with toothpaste and ink, trying to open my eyes up a little bit and trying to smooth down my hair the best I can. And uh, I go in shackles and handcuffs and I'm escorted by an officer. And this is how you walk into court when you don't have money to make your bond or your bail. This Mm is how 60% of Americans walk into court looking like they're guilty for sure. For me, I was pleading guilty. That wasn't the issue. But you can see how that could be a disparity for for marginalized communities, right? Um, But I go in, and my lawyer comes to see me. I'm in a holding cell at the courthouse, and he comes to see me and says, they've got an offer. The DA made an offer. I said, okay, well, what is it? I'm thinking he's fixing to tell me probation. And he says, 40 years Oh, my God. My heart fell to my stomach. I was um, nauseous, and I realized right then uh, there's, I was not getting probation. That wasn't. He, my attorney, who we did pay for, he wanted me to sign. For 40 years? Yes, ma'am. For 40 years. My God. So you're a 30-year-old. That's your... Your whole life? Yes. That's all my kids, completely grown, grandchildren, everything. That's that's what I kept thinking. Like, that's, it's over. It's, you know. So you didn't take that deal? No, absolutely not. And you went to trial? So I didn't go to trial because... You um, pled guilty. I pled guilty. and, And I didn't take that deal, and the way that works is it's negotiating over months, right? So you say no, and then you go back to the county jail and wait another month or three weeks, and then you come back, and they have another offer. And so then it was like 27 years, and then it was like 25 years, and then it was you know, down and down, and then it was 20, and then it was 20, and then it was 20, 
And I kept telling him, if you get it to 10, in my mind, I could make that work in my mind. At 20, I just couldn't imagine. Mm. And at, then the third time I went with that 20 offer, he said, look, they want to arrest your husband. And he had nothing to do with it. Absolutely not. He didn't know anything, and he had nothing to do with it. And he was home taking care of my two babies. Mm. And I, I just thought, that can't happen. And I signed the paper for 20. Um, when I got back to the county jail, I had to call home and let my parents know. And my dad, um, Rosie, he was so upset. Yeah. He, we just didn't think it was going to be 20. We knew it was going to be something. Uh, yeah, it was hard. That was a hard phone call. Oh, my God. Hey, don't go away. There's more to come. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
So you go in for 20 and you're 30 years old and you've lived a life where you've gotten in no trouble. You have no experience with prison or with any kind, even the, the, the people that were in prison, like must have been a shock to you to be kind of surrounded by criminals, but you come to find out their life story and there's so many stories similar to your own. Very much so. I, I, you know, my parents raised me to love everybody and be open-minded and treat everyone with equality and love, but they also raised me kind of in this bubble, in this middle-class white suburban neighborhood. And so I go into prison and it's diverse. It's mm. people from all walks of life with stories that I could never even imagine, stories that I saw on television that I didn't even ever picture real people, real women having to deal with. And I quickly learned listening to these ladies um, just how kind of messed up our justice system is, right? We're we're putting mentally ill people in prison as the answer, people with substance abuse disorders. And these ladies, Rosie, I met some of the absolutely most beautifully spirited and beautifully hearted women that I have ever met in my life. And I met them in the penitentiary. Right. And you were in for 10 years until you got was it paroled or what, what, what was it commuted or how, how what is the term with, that you got your sentence from 20 to 10? I made parole at 10 years. And so now I'm home. I'm still on parole. So kind of technically, I'm still serving my sentence. I'm just serving it out here in our community. And so do you have to do that for 10 more years? Yes, I'm till yes. 2030. So you have a probation officer? I do. And you have to report to him on a, on a scheduled basis. I do. I'm completely accountable to him and the state of Texas to be able to come here. I had to check in with him. He had to give me a travel permit. I had to submit to a urine analysis to make sure I wasn't on any illegal substances. When I go back, I have to report to him within 24 hours. Yeah, he, they keep a close eye on us. Mm. Now, since you've been out, you have dedicated a lot of your free time to really helping change the system in the women's penitentiaries in Texas. You've you this weekend you're here in Los Angeles at a TikTok gathering of prison TikTok. If you're not familiar with prison TikTok, it's a hashtag that you can click on and you it, it's people who are now out and who most of them are that I'm watching are using their experiences to try to help change the system like you're doing. And you recently had a big victory with getting a law passed, right? We did. We really did. I'm So I'm with an organization called Linus Justice Impacted Women's Alliance, and we are made up of formerly incarcerated women and currently incarcerated women. And what we do is we advocate for change within the prison system, mainly for women. And the law that we got passed is a, about a medical transport bill. And it's now we're waiting for Governor Abbott to sign it. So it's not officially a law quite yet, but it passed the House and passed the Senate. And it will just offer women privacy using the restroom uh, as something as simple as that. Just give them just a little more dignity. 
Well, so this was, you told me this story yesterday. It was fascinating that um, when people are transferred to another facility, it's often a six to nine hour bus ride. And there's no bathroom. Like when you go on a bus to to Vegas or something, or I've only been on buses to Atlantic City, there's a bathroom in there that closes. You have privacy. But here, there's not. Oh, it's nothing like that. If you guys can imagine, everybody's been on a school bus at some time in their life, right? If you take one of those bench seats out of the school bus and you just build a square wooden box and put a hole in that, that's what the bathroom is. There's no curtain. There's no privacy. There's people sitting just within inches from you on your left and with just (laughs) inches from you on your right. There's people directly across from you. And you can imagine as a woman in particular how... um, humiliating that can be, like changing feminine products, this type of thing. So, Rosie, my first time on a transport bus, I was being transported from my intake unit to my ID unit, and it was in Dayton, Texas, which is near Houston, all the way up to Gatesville. It was a seven- or eight-hour trip, and I was handcuffed to a lady who had done about 23 years. Mm. And I said, about three hours into the trip, I said, I think I have to go to the ladies' room. And she said, girl, you should have put on a bunch of maxi pads like I did. Wow. And a few hours later, I watched a young lady have to change her tampon in that environment. And there are men, there are guards, male guards on the bus. Absolutely. The bus driver, perhaps, is the guy. Absolutely. You can't even have your hands free to wipe or to change. Imagine your your hand is handcuffed and you're trying to change and, and, and replace a tampon in front of all of these people. You know, it's just the lack of basic human dignity, you know? And that was the reality of what you were entering. Yes, ma'am. That that was kind of just the foreshadowing of the kind of things I was going to see while I was incarcerated. So you get in there and you're there the first week and you are in your bed crying. What what are you doing? Well, I I spent a lot of the nights with my head kind of under my cover, just still in shock that I was there that I had put myself in that situation. So there's so much shame and guilt behind that, that it it was eating me from the inside, missing my kids. I was still dreaming, like my dreams were halfway in prison and halfway in the free world, and my kids were kind of with me, or I was in my prison clothes and the free world with them, having to run back in time for count time in prison. And I would wake up in these night sweats. Um, it was a hard adjustment. It, it was really hard figuring out how to live with myself mm. after I had done what I had done. Were you scared right away? Did you feel as though there was violence everywhere and you were in danger or were you more like depressed and, and calm? Like was it, was it terror right away? Walking into the prison, you hear so many stories like, don't take anything from anybody. Don't, people are going to try to get over on you. People are, you know, um, but man, right, 
from the start, Rosie, the ladies were helpful. They were giving me the lowdown because the state really doesn't tell you anything. The officers don't tell you anything. It's the ladies that live there that are going to tell you, we eat at this time. This is how you do this. This is, don't do that or you'll get in trouble. Put your shoes here or you'll be in trouble. These kind of things. And they were helpful. I never feared anybody that I was incarcerated with. And I spent my time, I was on a maximum security unit. Texas kind of jumbles everybody together. Mm -hmm. So I was there with people that were never going to come home again. And I never felt fear from the ladies I was incarcerated with. The only fear I felt had to do with staff. Yeah, because you've told me stories and maybe we could tell some right here. I mean, I worry that you're on parole and they might go, I don't like you telling the truth and do something to send you back. Do you worry about that as well? Like you're allowed to have free speech on parole, but you're, you're talking a lot about the reality of prison, which I assume the prison industry doesn't really enjoy. Do you know, Rosie, I talk about it right in front of those legislators, too, mm -hmm. and I go right on up boldly, and this is why I'm confident, because I just only tell the truth about it. Right. And so everything I say, they cannot prove that I was not telling the truth, because it's factual. Right. Guards who were just um, cruel, and uh, so many men, and so much of uh, abusive, misogynist behavior— that you had to put up with, the guards exposing themselves to you and riding you, you know, you're a very attractive woman. They would say, you know, horribly sexual things to you. And, and how did you know how to survive all that? You know right away who has all of the power in there and who has none. And as an incarcerated person, your word doesn't mean anything um, you don't have any control over any situation. The only thing you have control over is how you react. Mm. So you learn that very early on. So you can't, it's not a situation where an incident happens from staff and you out here, you might, you might look at somebody crazy if they said some sexual innuendo towards you. You can't even do that. You kind of have to play it off. You just know how to avoid that situation. You know how to pay attention to your surroundings and not put yourself in a situation where you could be off camera alone with an officer or um, something like that. And, and I'll also say, I met lots of staff members that would never dream of abusing their power, mm. you know, that were there to have a job and feed their families and get benefits, health benefits, right? But I also just met an equal or more amount that horrified me, quite frankly. Mm. So you were pretty much a good prisoner, but then you went through a phase where you kind of lost yourself. You lost your mind and you were um, put in segregation in the hole. What we would we uh, people out here in the free world say uh, from we know from watching these shows that it's you were put in isolation for how long were you put there? I was in and out of of the hole for about two years. Just, wow! Um, in and out of medium custody and in and out of the hole. I did completely lose myself, Rosie. They weren't, I wasn't making parole. I was, felt like I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing to make parole. Uh, my daughters that I had left in diapers were in elementary school 
and kindergarten and first grade. And I just remember thinking to myself that if I had died instead of committing this crime and taking myself, removing myself from my kid's life, then they, by now they would have healed from that. Mm -hmm. By now they would have moved on. And as it is now, they're living with themselves every day. My mom's in prison. And I just couldn't, I did not know how to forgive myself and move forward at that point. And I wanted, I didn't care. I started acting crazy. I did it. I was talking back to the officers. I was, I mean, just rebellious. You were enraged at yourself. You were enraged at the situation. And you kind of gave up a little bit, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. How horrible was the whole? I mean, we see it all the time, and it's been, you know, declared unconstitutional to put people in in isolation like that, especially there are people, as you know, who've been in segregation for years of their life, years and years. That's like cruel and unusual punishment. How horrible was it? Was it at the worst part of your prison experience was being isolated like that in in the segregated unit? I think the worst part was probably when I went to had to go to the crisis management center, which is like if you have a suicide attempt and we we can get to that, that was the whole was probably better than that. But it's exactly like what you can imagine. It's a small, dirty little cell. Um, you might find like feces on the wall. I mean, they're filthy, graffiti all over the walls. You see um, a lot of religious pictures where people had drawn in or carved religious pictures or like prayers or uh, God help me kind of things on the wall. And then um, there's a sense of desperation in that entire building. It was, it's sad. It's hard to be in there with nothing but yourself and your thoughts, especially when you're a sit- in a situation that you've already realized you can't really figure out how to live with yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the suicide rates for inmates in the whole are, are really high. Um, you hear people crying out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sad. Yeah. It's really sad. It's re- and you did you get to a point where you were suicidal? I did. Yeah. I and did. was there mental health help in any capacity? So if you attempt a suicide or um, if the staff believes that you're suicidal, because sometimes you might be suicidal and you might tell the staff and they don't believe you or don't take you seriously, that happens. Or sometimes people say they're suicidal because they just want to leave the situation that they're in or, you know, and so um, that happens too. But what they do is in Texas for women, they take you to the crisis management center, which is on another unit. You, you, First, you go to the hole, and I was already in the hole when I went, but then they take your your panties, your bra, they leave you in one gown, and they take your mattress, they take your sheets, you don't have anything, you're just in the cell, nothing but your gown, and they have an officer posted outside your door watching you to make sure that you don't hurt yourself, and then you're waiting for transportation to go to the crisis management center. The crisis management center when you go in there, they take your gown. So you're completely nude. There's no bed. It's just a concrete room. Um, 
There is a toilet, stainless steel toilet. Uh, the officers come by every 15 minutes. Male, to look at you naked? Male or female to look at you. I mean, they're checking to make sure you're alive and doing what they're supposed to be, but you are completely naked and you don't get a blanket. I didn't get a blanket until my second day there. So I didn't have any coverage. I, it was horrible. I was there for 20 days. Oh my God, Marcy. Um, How'd you survive that? First of all, how is that supposed to help someone who is suicidal? I know it taking everything out prevents you from trying to make a noose or do something that would hurt you, but that's even worse than, than standard prison in the hole. At least you have a bed in there, right? So you come from this suicidal, desperate place to a worse place. That's exactly right. So one of two things happens, right? If you you either are to a point where you just don't even care about the conditions because that's how deep you've gotten down into your depression mm. and you just you're just there and that's kind of how I was or you are still suicidal and still having these invasive thoughts and you just tell them I'm not suicidal. I feel okay because when you say those words, they send you back to the unit. And so you, in some ways, are able to free yourself from there by saying that. That's right. That's right. But then, if you're still having those thoughts, you're you're still not getting help, and you're right. still at risk for losing your life or taking your own life. Were, were there a lot of deaths while you were in there? A lot of suicides? I know I know personally 11 people that took their lives while I was incarcerated. Those are the ones that I knew personally. Nine inmates and two officers. Wow. That is intense. The conditions in that environment are very harsh. They're harsh for the people that are housed there and they're harsh for the people employed there. Stay tuned. We'll be back. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. 
You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, talk about harsh. I mean, you know, we've known each other a while now, and I've heard so many of these stories, but the one that haunts me the most, I believe, is the temperature inside the prisons in Texas. That if you Google it, it says that Texas prisons have air conditioning, but the reality is they do not. So explain that. So it's tricky because some of the areas in the prison where I was at were air conditioned. The areas where the officers sit, the picket, the administrative offices, the visitation room, the chapel, the education building, but the buildings that actually house the inmates are absolutely not air conditioned. And they're miserably hot, dangerously hot. There was a uh, thermometer that you were able to sort of get and they put black masking tape over the temperature so inmates can't see just how hot it is. But how hot was it when you got that masking tape off? It was 136 degrees in the dorm where I lived the last summer I was incarcerated. Were people having seizures? All the time, Rosie. Heat-induced seizures, I didn't even know that was a thing until I got to prison. In the summers, there are so many ladies. My girlfriend, Brittany, suffered mm -hmm. from heat-induced seizures um, during the, the hot summer. She's been home three and a half years now and hasn't had one since. She, you know, they are definitely heat-induced. It was a very dangerous situation. The problem is, if you have any other health ailment, diabetes, any kind of heart diseases, the heat exasperates that so intensely. And so then when an, a lady incarcerated person goes to the hospital or passes away in the summer, it's because of her heart disease. Well, it's because, she, yes, she had heart disease and she was housed in extreme temperatures. That's the real problem. Now, speaking of Brittany, you guys met in prison and you uh, fell in love and she got out before you and set up an apartment and waited for you to get out. And then you got out 
and you've been together ever since. So how long have you been together with Brittany? We've been together for five years, since 2017. And Rosie, we're getting married soon. I heard <laughs> And I better be invited. Absolutely. We can't wait. We're, uh, yeah, we're making it official. Um, we're just out here building our life together and healing yeah. from our traumas together. And we're just very much happy and in love. And my family just adores her. Right, and your kids love her. Your grandkids call her their best friend, right? Yes. <laughs> my, my, I have two grandsons, and they're the cutest things ever, and they do. They'll say, Momo, can we come spend the night? And I'll say, sure. Is, is my best friend there? <laughs> <laughs> no, what was there? Were there? You were not gay before you went in, but you always sort of knew in, in the back of your mind that that was a possibility, Correct. That's absolutely right. I had never been in any kind of long-term relationship with a woman before I went to prison, but I was always attracted to women or men. I, You know, I don't think a lot about how someone's built on the outside necessarily. I really feel like I feel their energy and their spirit, and that's kind of what I'm attracted to. Right. And I had really not been in very many long-term relationships. I've been married twice and once to my high school sweetheart mm -hmm. and divorced just for a short time and then got remarried. Right. So it's not like I have all this experience. Frankly, I had more relationships in prison than I had my entire free world life. Right. And and you were so young too, right? You were young when you had your first child. You were a teen mom. Um, and you had a wonderful husband while you were in prison who would bring your girls to you every time he could. And he would sit, you told me, with his cowboy hat, push down over his eyes and take a nap and let you just have them all to yourself, climbing on top of you. And, you know, that's not the rule is you can't touch, right? But what do you do with a baby that's five and six? Right. And there was actually in Texas, you... For children that are set under 17, they're allowed to hug their mom. They're allowed to, to be with her, sit in her lap. Mm -hmm. My my kids sat in my lap. Even my middle school son, his first visit with me uh, when I got incarcerated, he sat in my lap the mm -hmm. whole visit. They were just needed to feel that. And thank goodness that we are allowed to do that. There was a short time. We had one warden one time for like six months. She said, no. You can't, kids can't sit in your lap. Right, how and horrible, it horrible. Was, it was terrible. The girls were used to being able to braid my hair, and you know this was our ritual. We braid, all braided each other's hair every visit, and they were used to sitting in my lap, and one on each leg, and they were, when that happened, I think they were about seven and eight, and it was hard. Yeah. It was, a, it was really hard. There are like moments that you tell me of just pure cruelty, like there was a pond that, was a man-made pond on, on the prison grounds, and you got a new warden, and she said, fill it up with dirt for no reason. There was no incident around having a pond, a little bit of nature, a little bit of, of life and, and something beautiful to look at, and it was just taken away without incident. That's exactly right. She also had us to cut all of the rose bushes down, d dig them up, get rid of them. They were there for no reason. She didn't want 
she didn't want us to have any relief, I think, from from the harsh environment we were in. You know, just sometimes you can imagine if you're walking down the road and you see a rose, you know, you might stop and th- admire or look up, you know, and that's nice. And it's the same thing in there. You might be going back to your dorm and we would be like, oh, the roses are blooming. Oh, it's got new blooms. And that was just taken away, just taken away. You told me about the prison jobs that you had, especially the one pulling weeds. Can you just describe what that was like? Because when you told it to me and you visually leaned down in the manner that you were allowed to do it, you couldn't bend your knees to pick the weeds. Like, Tell people what that was. So that's called the field squad. And the kind of the nickname is called the hoe squad. And the work that we did was very similar to plantation work. We had an officer that was on horseback. He was armed. That was our boss. And uh, the pulling weeds part, we would all line up at the end of the garden and each one of us in a row, and you were responsible for pulling all the weeds. And you would have to, if you just stand up and bend at the waist, you can't bend your knees and you're just bent at the waist there pulling weeds, you're not allowed to stop. You're not allowed to stand up and rest your back or stretch your back. You're not allowed to squat down and bend at all. And you're just doing that the whole the whole shift, the whole That's, work shift. Sounds like slavery, right? Looks it, like slavery. It absolutely does. It absolutely, it, it is. It yeah. is. And we're doing it with no pay. I mean, it is. Yeah. Horrifying. Um, now, one thing that you learned to do in prison, which I really fell in love with you when I was watching you on TikToks with this prison cooking thing that you would do, like, I can't even explain. You talk to people about food that you would make in prison with just stuff from the commissary. What was the best thing that you made that everyone went crazy about in the prison? Because you were a renowned prison cook, weren't you? I was a really good cook in prison, and I cooked and fed a lot of people while I was there. I think probably my best recipe was maybe a pizza pocket. Which you made out of what? So I would take um, crackers and crush them down and kind of make a masa for a crust and lay them out. And then maybe turkey bites, which is like maybe a Slim Jim made out of turkey. Slice those up, make a sauce out of ketchup. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you do what you have to do. Yes, ketchup and garlic powder, cut up some jalapenos, um, squeeze cheese, cream cheese, and you fold your pocket together and then we would we call it frying but really it's air frying it's with a hair dryer right and we'd put it in a bag and our bag would be our oven and we'd put that blow dryer in it's unbelievable what you were you were like macgyver in there right you could take anything from the commissary and make something delicious for everyone to look forward to i mean what a beautiful thing You know, food in the free world brings people together and food in prison, that brings people together as well. And we did have moments, as as horrifying as the conditions were, we still supported each other and had moments of celebration. We played games on holidays. We got together when, when it was a weekend and the TVs were on and there was a movie coming on, the whole dorm would watch. And we, we did these things 
at, for survival and for companionship and friendship. And there were a lot of beautiful moments. I have good memories from that time because there were good people there. Right. And you're still friendly with many, many women that you served with. And when they get out, I know you have them on your on your TikTok and on your podcast. Tell everybody about your podcast now. Yes. So we started a podcast. It's called On the Rec Yard Women's Prison Podcast. And we try to talk about things that we might talk about on the prison rec yard. We talk a lot about some of it more heavy and in-depth um, about the disparities in our legal system and some of them more lighthearted like prison late nights, what how that went down and coffee shots and how we celebrated. And uh, it's fun. It's great. It feels good to talk about those things. And we do it. We're live on YouTube so that's exciting also because it's live. We take questions live and it's a lot of people we were incarcerated will pop in and give questions. And Excellent. Well, I'm about to go jump on and do it. So, um, yeah, listen, I love you, Marcy. I think you're phenomenal. I love Brittany, too. I, I think that you're an amazing woman and what you've done now since you've been out trying to help the women who are still incarcerated and make life a little bit easier for, for them and, and more humane. I mean, it's really... It's really tragic what we do to inmates and in, in the guise of rehabilitation when there really is none in prison and, and it's only getting worse. And we incarcerate more people than any country in the world by far. And it has to change in our country. And I'm very proud of all the work that you're doing in order to make that a reality. So thank you for being my friend and thank you for coming and spending the night here. And... Um, We'll see you at the wedding for sure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you, Rosie. Right back at you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed talking to her. Um, follow her, as I said, on TikTok, Marcy Marie. You will enjoy it. Okay, uh, next week we have Samantha B. I love Samantha B. She is so smart. She is so astute. She is so beautiful. She's a great mom. She's a wonderful friend, and I, I love her. And she's got a new podcast, and we're going to tell you all about it. So next week, Samantha B., don't miss it. It's Rosie O'Donnell. This is Onward. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.